I wonder if you've ever had an experience like this. Someone comes up to you and they tell you something really good. Uh, it isn't something disconnected from you. It's something which directly affects you. It might be something where hope gets stirred up. If it's like if I believe this, hope is going to get stirred up and there's nothing worse than disappointed hope, right? Um, so you're kind of a little bit guarded and, and you kick into verification, right? You just go, how do I verify what you're saying is true? How do you know? You might ask them. How do you know that that's true? Who told you? Are you sure? And then as they give you good answers, you start to let yourself go a little bit in terms of hope and you just go, yeah, this, this actually is true and you feel hope welling up inside of you. This is where we're at at the end of chapter 3 of, of John. It's been an amazing chapter. If you, if you go back to the uh, stuff that we've cav- covered in chapter 3 of John, some of the richest stuff in the Bible, right? I mean, it contains the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That, you know, you could go, that's gold. And it is, right? It is gold. Uh, John 3 told us that eternal life is on offer. I mean, is, is there not a more important thought? for humanity than eternal life being on offer, especially the kind of eternal life that John talks about, which is something we'll get to a little bit later. There's stuff in John 3 about saving the world, and who knows the world needs saving? You know that? I mean, one thing that we've learned this week, even if we don't look at our own lives, is that the world needs saving. Jesus came uh, um, not to condemn the world. Uh, That's beautiful, isn't it? I mean... God could have just shown up with, with gloves on and just or some kind of supernatural weaponry and just taken us all out, but he didn't. Didn't do that at all. We find that out in John 3 verse 17, that Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. Uh, we, we learn about coming into the light and how good it is to come into the light. We learn about being born again. We learn... Last week that the bridegroom, Jesus, has come for the bride, his church. That's amazing stuff. And, and you know, even as I say this, there's probably some of you who would just, it kind of runs like water off a duck's back, just go, yeah, I know that. You know, God's love for us is incredible. You know, John 3.16 is in this passage. You go to Ephesians 3, and Paul prays that the Ephesians know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. All right, so you get your head around that. If you sit there and you go, yeah, I know, I know all this stuff. It's like, well, maybe, maybe we don't always know the way that we need to know. Maybe that's true. Who knows that that's the case? Sometimes there's just a whole another million levels down. And if we just think about, yeah, I know that, it stops that. And yeah, there's that tendency in the church. We can get so used to it. You know, I've had times in my life of quite significant doubt. And one of the things... That has happened when I've come out of that and I've, and I've resolved some of that is I come back to the truths of Scripture and they are absolutely amazing, aren't they? Even outrageous. It is, it is outrageous that God would come, take on human flesh and die the death of a criminal for us, the criminals. That is outrageous. 
This chapter is incredible. Now slow down and consider it. If you understand the profundity and the amazingness of this chapter, it's a natural question. Says who? <laughs> Says who? It's like, don't, don't set me up for false hope here. I want to know who actually said this. I want to know it. And John deals with this at the end of this chapter, this very thing. Now, there's a little bit of debate about this section that we're going to read today about whether it's John the Baptist saying it or whether it's John uh, the disciple writing it. I think it's John the disciple writing it. It doesn't sound to me like John the Baptist and there's a lot of experts that kind of uh, think that also. Um, it seems to be a bit of a summary uh, by John answering the question, says, says who? So let's, let's have a read. I'd love for you to open your Bibles to John 3. We're going to start at verse 31. We use the English Standard Version. It's going to be really important for you to have the Bible in front of you if you can. You can probably get it online at Bible Hub or Bible Gateway or just type in ESV Bible and something will come up. John 3, we're going to read verse 31 to 36. Remember, uh, we just had the section about John the Baptist. The last statement of John the Baptist is, he must increase, Jesus, I must decrease. And uh, the lead-in here in verse 31 is uh, a bit of a, um, a connector to that previous statement by John the Baptist. John 3, verse 31, he who comes from above is above all, talking about Jesus. He who is of the earth talking about John the Baptist but also talking about everyone else he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way he who comes from heaven Jesus is above all Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard yet no one receives his testimony whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this that God is true for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's a two-point sermon today. Here's the first one. How do you determine what's true? Now, if you look at verses 31 to 32 and verse 34 there, for John... Truth exists in a person. I want you to hear this. Truth exists in a person. And if you want to know the truth, you have to buy into the person. That's what John's saying. And John wants you to know that Jesus is the real deal. He's authoritative and he's authentic. And so what John actually does in this passage, John the disciple, is he verifies for you and helps to verify who this person is who's saying these wondrous things. And there's two ways that he does it. He talks about authority and authenticity. Here's the authority piece. This one's pretty straightforward. It's at the beginning of verse 31. You can see it right there. He's above all. He's authoritative. Now, there is a, a section of study, a section of lots and lots of experts called epistemology. Right, And epistemology is about how do we determine what's actually true. And there's lots of ways that we determine how something is true. 
science helps us to determine what's actually true. It's kind of observation. But there's lots of ways that we determine what's true. Let me give you another one, another one of the ways epistemologically that we actually determine what's true by authority. By authority. Uh, and you, you do this all the time. You, you go to the doctor and you get a blood test and the people in the lab give you a report on your blood and you sit and have a conversation with your doctor about things you know nothing about. And you believe them. Right? Most of the time. You believe them. Why do you believe them? Because they're authoritative. That's why. They're authoritative. They've done the study. They know. You all walked into a building today and you didn't even think about whether the roof is going to hold up or not. Why? Because at some point in time, a builder and before that, an engineer and a designer actually designed this place and they had the expertise to know how big that beam needed to be so it didn't fall on your head. You work with, you and I work with authoritative ways of actually determining what's, determining what's true all the time. And as a side note, this is why people get so messed up when they get abused by authoritative people. Because it's such a huge part of the way that we actually do life, authority, when someone abuses their authority, you kind of, in your head, you kind of go, I can't trust anyone who's in authority. Now, I've, I've met people like this, lots of people like this, and in particular, the worst kind of abuse of authority is when the church abuses authority. Somehow that just seems to cut like way, 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 way deeper. And it's a gnarly thing, right? The church is full of imperfect people and led by imperfect people. But here's the reality. It can, it can just cut really, really deeply. And when you take that piece of your head out that says, I'm going to learn stuff by authority, it can leave you all at sea and it often does do that. What's, what's John telling us about Jesus? He's telling us he's above all. He's authoritative. You should listen to him because there's no one who is as senior as him. What's the other thing that John does? Well, John actually speaks to the authenticity of Jesus. Now, I hope I'm not throwing too much stuff out to you today, but in um, philosophy... There's two ways you can verify if something's true and that's by, by correspondence. The way that someone says that something is has to correspond with the way things actually are and the other way is co- coherence, I should say. Um, coherence, so that, that means a, a whole particular view makes sense. If it internally contradicts itself, you can just go, oh, it's rubbish, I don't have to pay any attention to it. If it doesn't correspond to reality, you can throw it out and you can say, oh, it's not true because it just doesn't correspond. If the light's red and you're telling me that it's green, then it's just a nonsense statement. I don't have to worry about what you say. Now, what does it say here in uh, John chapter 3? Have a look at verse 32. He, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Jesus is an eyewitness to the things of which he speaks. This is not, some guy told me something once. That's not what this is. 
It's not Chinese whispers. This is the Son of God bearing witness to the very things of which he speaks. Now, I... Has anyone here watched the back page on Fox Sports? It's like the... Yeah. It's like my favourite time of the week. It's, I, I belly laugh every week watching the back page. It's, it's a sports program on Fox Sports. Uh, and this week they had Cedric Jubler on, uh, on the show, right? And most of you remember Cedric because he was the one in the uh, men's decathlon that stood there yelling at his mate to keep going so he would win the bronze medal. Do you remember that? Uh, that was at the Olympic Games. You know, and there's, it was interesting because um, I found it really fascinating because here you've got um, Cedric on Fox Sports and he comes on and there's this big media narrative that's been painted about how this is such an Australian thing that's gone on. Look, he sacrificed himself. He, um, he, just, he, just, he didn't worry about his own points in his own time. He just wanted to get his mate across the line. And there was a bit of that going on. But you know what was interesting is um, Cedric, um, on this interview, corrected the record on a whole bunch of things. Let me tell you. That was not the first time that Cedric and his mate have done it to each other. He actually said, we do this to each other all the time in training. When we're going for a PB in the gym, we'll just be yelling at each other about stuff. You know, so it wasn't like the first time that there was this kind of yelling to urge one another on. And this was the bit that kind of, this is a real kicker. The real kicker was that the Australian... uh, uh, um, athletes in that event actually had a conversation about how they would support each other if someone else was doing better in the final race. So it wasn't like this spontaneous thing where his mate looked like he was going to win a bronze medal but he was, he was running out of gas and someone needed to come along. No, they had designed from the very beginning, before they even had the event, that that's what they were going to do. You know what you have with Cedric Jubler? Someone who was there. He knew what he said. It was someone who was, who was uh, having the conversation with the, uh, with the team before the uh, race actually happened. And you know what happens is that he can correct the record. Why? Because he was there. He tells you about everything that went on. Jesus does that. He's there. I mean, I, man, would I love to have been a fly on the wall in some of the conversations going on between the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit before this whole salvation thing kicked off? Wouldn't you? You know, Jesus is the real deal. He, uh, John goes on in verse 34, for he whom God has sent doesn't just see and hear what actually goes on, he utters the very words of God. So now, John just takes it up a notch. He's actually saying, look, it's, it's even more than Jesus being an eyewitness. There's, he has an unrestrained measure of the Spirit, Jesus, and there's no difference between what he says and what God says. They say the same thing, perfect alignment, perfect alignment with reality and the way that things are he's the real deal you can take it to the bank this supremacy of jesus and his word is something other new testament writers say also you see this in 
Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 2. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he spoke to us by his son. It's going to take it up a whole bunch of notches. Well, here's a question. Um, John's verifying Jesus. So here's, here's my question for you. How do you verify that the Bible is God's word? That's an interesting question, right? Because you look at what John's done with Jesus and it's like, well, how do I verify that, that Jesus was a witness? It, it gets a bit tricky. Now, this is a big question. How do you verify that the Bible is authentic and authoritative? That God's word is authentic and authoritative? Now, my... Um, my study supervisor made this comment about something I wrote in uh, a paper I was writing a while ago. He said to me, he just made a comment on the side of this paper. He said, if you open a can of worms, you have to eat it. All right? And, uh, and I'm concerned about opening a can of worms today, but I just want to open a corner of the can. Some of you are going, it's, they're round. So how do you open a corner? Well, I don't know. Let's, I'm going to squeeze it and make a corner, and then we're just going to open that little bit up. How do you know that God's word is true? Well, I think in similar ways to the way that John's doing, with, uh, by authority and authenticity. Let me start with authenticity. You can, you can verify with historical evidence that the things that are written in Scripture are true. Not to all the finest details, but you can verify. You can get out there and you can actually work out if they align with reality there's literary evidence there's philosophical evidence you can check that out uh, in Jesus's day he didn't just say take my word for it he actually did miracles and the miracles uh, were, were kind of proof of his abilities you might remember in Mark so proof of who he was you might remember in Mark 2 verse um, in Mark 2 there's a story of the paralytic that gets brought along to Jesus and he says to the paralytic and probably much to the disappointment of a few people there, um, your sins are forgiven. And, uh, and then the religious people started questioning, and he makes this comment. Um, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. So there's a miracle that actually um, points to his authority, and people can see that. All of that helps. But here's, here's, the, uh, here's, here's the question for me. How does someone who's not an expert in um, manuscript transmission, ancient history, philosophical thinking, how does that person actually work out that Scripture's authoritative? Do you see, do you see what the problem is? If, if the only thing that we've actually got is that we're able to mark off what we see in Scripture with what exists in reality, the authenticity piece, then it's going to kind of rule a bunch of people out. Because it's like, and I'm not having a go, it's just like, man, there are philosophical arguments I can't get my head around, right? The really high-end Christian philosophers just do some incredible stuff, but it's, it can get pretty intense, 
And, and like if, if your receiving of the word of God is as authoritative, is dependent upon you being able to check all of that stuff out, uh, A, you're never going to finish because there will be always things that you'll be checking out and B, um, it doesn't really make it available to a little child. Do you see, do you see the problem? Well, uh, that's where authority uh, comes into it. Um, you, you see this a little bit in the Gospels. This is Mark 1, 21 to 22. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, this is a spin out, right? Like they're in there and all of a sudden Jesus is teaching and he's not like a uni lecturer or a scribe who's going such and such a person said this and this person said this Jesus didn't do that he said this is what I say to you and there was an there was a, an authority in the way that he was teaching he would say truly truly I say unto you and you know when it when it all comes down to it here's here's the uh the hyphenated word I'd love for you to um just going to settle on and it's a uh, it's something theologians have uh, talked about uh, quite a bit is that scripture is self-authenticating that's what it is it's self-authenticating and what is that you know what that is that's where the spirit works in your life to make you see the majesty of God in the scriptures and do you know something that can happen to anyone can happen to a four-year-old can happen to a 44-year-old an 84-year-old it doesn't matter what age you are it doesn't matter how smart you are you go to the scriptures and you just see the majesty of God and who God is in the scriptures and it's because the spirit has actually done a work in your heart you know anyone who receives the scriptures as the word of God does say because the spirit's actually worked in their heart it's not that there aren't arguments that support it and that they aren't important it's that we need the spirit to actually see what truly is in the scriptures it becomes authoritative and authoritative in our lives because of what the spirit does in our hearts now does that make sense I reckon I reckon you know this you know this. Do you know one of the, one of the uh, reasons why I think we know this is because most people don't become Christians because they've read the arguments for the truthfulness of Christianity. Have you noticed that? Most people read the arguments for Christianity after they've become a Christian. So what actually happened in that moment when you became a Christian? You got to see the majesty and the beauty of God and you just knew the scriptures were God speaking to you. And you gave your life to him. And as a side note, if that hasn't happened to you, you need to get saved. <laughs> All right? You just need to get saved. If you read the scriptures and it doesn't do much for you, you need to give your life to Jesus and then everything will change for you. I remember when I became a Christian, you know, preacher's kid my whole life, I went to my pastor at the time because I couldn't believe how amazing this story was of the prodigal son. Now, how many times do you reckon I'd heard that one or read it? 500, probably. And I went up to him and I said, man, I've just been reading this thing. This is incredible. 
it's like the prodigal son. I can't believe this. You know what he said to me? He goes, yeah, yeah, no, it is good. You see, what he didn't, what he didn't see was something had changed inside of me. I mean, my parents had taught me the whole of my life the scripture was authoritative. But in that moment, the spirit changed my heart and God really started to speak to me through it. If that's you, just know it's been me before. And there's a, uh, a whole world that you, haven't, um, that you haven't tapped into yet. And you, uh, seriously, you should. <laughs> Tap into that. Tap into that. All right. Here's the fruit salad. All right. This is the bit where, uh, where it got flipped upside down for me. Okay. This is, um, this is where it gets uh, interesting. I want to talk about the nature of belief. Now, what I... What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you three flow charts, right? Because what, what became pretty obvious to me yesterday afternoon is that John's actually talking about three different people in this passage. And I trust that by the end of it, you'll see the rhythm of what John's actually saying because there's actually a rhythm to what he's saying, okay? So if you, you really need your Bibles open for this one. So uh, if you can crack John 3 open there, that would be really helpful. Um, the most significant person that John deals with is Jesus. And then another thread that's running through here is people who receive him. And then there's another thread running through here is, which is those who don't receive him. Let's start with Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask you to do some work in a minute. So you just got to have your, get you to have a conversation with the person next to you in a minute. All right. So I just need you to be switched on here. Notice the stuff about Jesus. Here we go. Jesus is above all, big, authoritative. This is the first thing John says about him in verse 31. Just covered that. Here's the second one. Jesus bears witness to what he sees and he hears. Maybe you can already see a little bit of something going on here. He's an observer and witnesser of heavenly things. He's in second hand, he sees and hears things, and then he passes them on. The third thing that John says about Jesus is Jesus has the spirit without measure and he speaks the words of God. No human is ever spoken of as having the spirit without measure, but God the Father gave the Holy Spirit to Jesus without measure. You see what's going on here is not, Jesus is not just passing on what he's seen and heard anymore. He's actually saying the words of God now. All right? And, and look where it ends in this passage. Jesus is loved by the Father and has been given all things. And the previous one, if you go back, brought us into the realm of the Trinity a bit, right? Because the Father's given the Spirit without measure and now we're right in the thick of it, all right? We're right in the thick of it. Jesus is loved by the Father, and the Father gives Jesus all things. All right, I'm going to give you one minute. And I just want, to, want you to have a quick chat to the person next to you and see if you can work out what's going on here. What, what is the movement from left to right in the way that John's talking about Jesus? 
All right? You ready? Just, just have a punt. It's all right. You can be wrong. 60 seconds. Have a quick chat. About 10 seconds. All right. How'd you go? Let me... Let me tell you what I think is going on. What we're talking about here is what, is what is the movement that's going on in the way that John's talking about Jesus. You know what the movement is? From further away to closer. From less personal to more personal. You see that? Above all, he's off there somewhere. But then the next step in is, no, he's not just off there somewhere. In the off there somewhere, he's actually seeing and witnessing things and he speaks about those things. And then all of a sudden, like it's, hang on, the Spirit's actually in him without measure and he's speaking the very words of God. And then all of a sudden, we're in the spa bath at the end there, aren't we? It's just like, man, like that's Jesus. Sorry, if that, if that stirs up some bad images for you. You see the movement? The movement is closer and closer from less personal to more personal. That's what it is. Now, let's, let's move to the next group of, or the next, I guess, group of people that John talks about. These are the people who respond positively to Jesus. Here's what they do. In verse 33, they receive his testimony. They receive what is said. They accept what he's saying that's true. All right, that's what they're doing. But look what happens next. And they don't just accept and affirm what he says is true. They're actually now saying that God is true. They're actually affirming God's truthfulness and not standing at a distance and kind of saying, this theory is good. They're actually saying the words that this person is speaking are good. The, the person is truthful. Now, you and I do that in one way or another with people anyway. If someone comes up to you 
and they tell you something and you, and you believe them, you are at least in that moment reckoning that they are a truth-speaking person. You know, to accept Jesus' witness of the way things are is to accept Him. It's to accept God Himself. It's much more than agreeing that something is a true statement. You know, it's not... When you come to God, you can't cherry pick. And people try to do that with Him all the time. It's like, well, we like this bit about Him. And we like this bit, so I'll take that bit. And I'll take that bit, and you might even have, and you might even be someone here today that, uh, that doesn't love Jesus, or you've got uh, uh, people that you're connected with that don't love Jesus, and they actually say things every now and then from the Bible that are true. They might have little sayings, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, I'm just saying that actually coming to Jesus and reckoning with Him is not just about cherry-picking, it's actually about what you're going to do with Him. You have to work out what you're going to do with Him. And if you look through the Gospels, Jesus is kind of really irritating a lot of the time for people because He keeps pressing people to work out what they're going to do with Him. You can't just have a piece of Him. You either have Him or you don't have Him. What's the next bit that John talks about? We go from receiving his testimony to affirming that God's true, still kind of a little bit of an external observer. Now it's about believing and trusting in the Son in verse 36. See, believing in Jesus is about buying into a person. You know, when anyone gives a testimony, you have to decide if you're going to trust them. It's even more significant with Jesus. Because like I said, you can't just pick and choose the bits that you like. You know, when we, when we pick and choose the bits that we like, we show that we're really serving at our own ends and we're actually not into Jesus. You know, parents, parents would know this and maybe some of you even remember it as a child. You keep saying to your parents, why? Why do I have to do that? Why? And sometimes, what do your parents say? They just get to the point, they go, because I said for you to do it. That's why. You know, it, it, it says something about someone's trust if they have to know why. It tells you that they don't really trust the other person and they want to be the judge about whether it's a reasonable thing that they're being asked to do. You know, it's a sign of a trusting, close relationship to not need to know why all the time. Everyone probably knows that verse from, those verses from Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on. Yeah. See that? We're expert at doing that. Right? But John's telling us that believing is trusting, is giving yourself and leaning upon the Son. What's the effect? The effect is they have eternal life. Now, this makes total sense when you understand the nature of eternal life as unpacked by John. John 17 verse 3 says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is not knowing about, this is a relational knowing. Matthew chapter 7 talks about people who can do lots of tricks, 
But at the end of the day, Jesus says, on that day, I'm going to say, I never knew you. We get down into 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, and it tells us what eternal life is. Listen to this. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The only way for you to have life is to be connected to Jesus because he is eternal life. It's not some kind of cosmic commodity that you can go to a supermarket and get off the shelf. You only get it when you're connected to Jesus. This is what John can say in a couple of chapters' time. John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus has covered you and you are now joined to the one who is life. Now, I'm going to give you 30 seconds and you've already, uh, you've already got a head start on this. But I have a quick conversation. What, what's the movement that's, um, that's going on here as John talks about people who respond positively to Jesus? Go for it. Have a quick chat. What's the movement? Ten seconds. It's a similar movement. What is it? It's it's similar to the one we saw previously. It's closer and more personal. Do you see that? You start off receiving the testimony, but then it's like, oh no, we're actually saying that God's true. Oh, no, at that point, we're not just saying that God's true. We're actually saying that we believe and we trust in him. And then we're in to eternal life. We're, we're part of God joins us into him. We get joined to, to Jesus. And we become this part of this life that is the Trinity. It's incredible. Closer, more personal. What about those who don't respond positively? Let me run through this. Well, it starts at this, they don't receive his testimony. That's verse 32. The witness of what Jesus has seen is heard and heard, they reject it. Second thing, verse 33, it doesn't actually explicitly say this, but the, it implicitly says this, that if you, if you accept what Jesus says, you say God is true. If you don't, you actually think he's not true. You're actually calling God a liar. This is what 1 John 5 verse 10 says, same author in the Bible. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. You're actually saying that God's a liar and that he's not speaking the truth. The third thing, it's an interesting uh, flip. If you go to verse 36, let me just get my... Uh, 
compare verse 36, uh, the two halves of it, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You'd expect it to say, whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But John doesn't say that. He says, whoever does not obey the Son does not see life. Is John smuggling in some kind of legalism where we've got to obey to get ourselves in the right place? No, he's not doing that at all. For John, what you do and what you believe are really closely connected. And it's not just for John, it's for everyone. I'll tell you something, you can say all you like about what you believe, but it's what you do that demonstrates what you believe. It's your functional belief that is the one that matters. If you believe something, you trust in it, and you'll see the evidence of it in someone's life, in your life. There's no such thing as saying that you believe in something and then doing something else. Okay? I mean, there's such a thing that it happens, but it doesn't actually make any sense. You don't actually believe it. You always do what you believe. You can talk about what you theoretically believe as much as you like. But what you do functionally is actually based upon what you actually believe. To disobey Jesus is to reject him. What's the last bit? Well, those who disobey the Son, who don't trust in him, have wrath or death hanging over their head. You know, it's, we could spend a lot of time on this and I want to finish up. But um, it's a good thing that God stands against evil. It's a good thing. I said to my sons earlier this week, you know, you can, uh, not wanting to get into a big political conversation, but all the stuff about Afghanistan and just the horrific images that have come out this week. Um, you know the Proverbs say that when good, when good people increase... People rejoice. But when evil people rule, they groan. Why, why, why did people hang on to the undercarriage of a plane and fall from a great height this week? Because of bad leaders. That's what it is. Because of bad leaders. And do you know something? I think that God should be against evil. Does anyone else think that? He should be against evil. I remember a mate of mine asking me years ago, he said, why doesn't God get rid of all the evil in the world? And I said, well, it just depends on how much you want him to get rid of. Because you're a contributor. Because the reality is, if you want him to get rid of all of it, you're gone. He's going to take you out. You know, the only way to get out from under this dark, dark cloud of wrath and death that's hanging over your head is by running to Jesus. It's the only way to do it. It's the only way to get to a place of life. You stand, any of us, all of us, before I was 16 and I gave my life to Jesus, I stood under the wrath of God and death because God's opposed to evil and I didn't want him. John 8 Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What's going on? What's the movement up here? Well, it's actually the opposite movement to the other two. Do you see that? When it comes to God, it moves from further away, 
more of a drone view to something much closer. When it comes to people who respond positively to Jesus, it does the same thing. But when we get to this point, it runs in the other direction. If you don't receive his testimony, you call him a liar, you disobey the son, you don't trust in him and you've got wrath hanging over your head. You're further away. Do you see that? You're moving further away. Now, I'm going to finish in about two minutes. I want to give you three, four actually, really quick uh, takeaways from today. I hope you got something off the train as it went past. Um, Apologies if you didn't. Uh, there's lots of good sermons online. You can go home and listen to the one, one of those when you get home. But hopefully there's been something helpful for you. Here's practical takeaways. Um, submit to God. Submit to God. Um, I spoke to someone this week who um, talked about their problems with the church. And there's lots of problems with the church. They're not connected to it. And uh, I... I can understand it. I can understand where they're coming from. But you know what? God says being part of the church and being in God's family is a good thing. So we should just do it. Um, When you sit down to read scripture, um, don't sit over it as a judge. Sit under it and receive it. I mean, I I said ages ago, sometimes I even stick my Bible just on my head, like literally. And it's weird, right? But it's actually physical. I do it when no one's watching all right, but it, it's a physical thing that just says that the word is over me. It's over me, and I'm under it. I'm not over it. Critiquing it, and let God teach you through it. When you pray, have your Bible open and make it a conversation between you and God. Read a few verses and then talk to Him about the verses, and then read some more. And He's going to speak to you by the Spirit through His Word. And, uh, and you can talk to him and you'll have a great conversation. Jesus and I have lots and lots of amazing conversations and I'm sure that you do too. So uh, just keep, keep doing that. Sit there. Yeah, I remember Eugene Peterson years ago saying the, the Bible is a personal message from God to you. So receive it that way. Here's the, here's the second thing. It's kind of similar. Um, it's a little bit more. Listen to God. Scripture is never less than theory, but it's far more than theory. It isn't just words on a page, it's the living Word of God. Now, you've got to be careful with that old phrase because everyone goes, oh, it's the Word of God, you know. And I've heard that so many times in my life, and it's a true phrase, but, you know, sometimes we can just forget that when we're saying it's the Word of God, it's actually the Word of a person who's speaking to you, not a book. It is a book, but it's more than a book. It's someone who's actually speaking to you. Um, you know, the Spirit works to drive it deep into our hearts. All right, here's number three. Maybe the music team can come up now. Trust in a person. Um, the Scriptures are Jesus' words that are meant to lead you to Jesus and to trust in Him. Um, we, who's, who's with me on this one? Like, it'd be nice to have certainty about a bunch of stuff. Has anyone noticed it's really hard to find it? 
You know, we long for it, we want it, we work for it, we try to control things. But it doesn't exist, and I'll tell you the reason why it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist because God designed certainty to be found in a relationship with a person, not in circumstances. That's how the world has been made. So if you're frustrated because your circumstances are not as certain as you want them to be, you're just barking up the wrong tree. And I don't mean to be rude to you, you're just barking up the wrong tree. The certainty that you want isn't about circumstances, it's about trust in a person. Happy to chat with you some more about that if you want. That's something that I've worked, had to work out in my own life. Last one, uh, draw closer to God. This is key, submit, listen and trust and draw in close personally to Jesus.